The following podcast may be explicit. Shedcast presents Adventures from the Shed, a tabletop RPG podcast. You can find us online at adventuresfromtheshed.com. Welcome to our second sidebar podcast. In this episode, we talk about what it means to us to be a game master or dungeon master. We know there's still a lot more to be said, so join us at adventuresfromtheshed.com and share your comments. Enjoy the podcast. It's going to get started. All right. So today we're getting together to do the sidebar podcast. We're going to talk about what it means to be a GM, both from a player perspective and the GM perspective. So right now we have myself, Joe. We have Mike. We have Kurt. Say hi, guys. Hey. Hey, everyone out there in listener land. All right. So the point of the uh, podcast today is to get a, a general overview of what you expect out of your GM, whether you be the GM or the player. And um, I'll start myself, um, Joe. I, I have mainly GM'd. Uh, I don't play that often, although I like to. I don't play that often. Um, I know part of it is uh, kind of the control freak idea that I, I want to make sure that what's going on is something I want to be happening. So having that part, the, the GM part of it, is very useful. Um, but what I'm going to start with, we have a few questions on our screen here. And um, I want to pick the first one, which might be controversial, but I want to put out there, is the game master, is the GM the ultimate authority at the table? And I want to say, from my perspective first, I'll throw this out there, as the GM in the games I play, the answer is a resounding no. I am not the ultimate authority at the table. At some times, you have to make a rules call, and players will look to you to say, if there's two players arguing, they'll typically turn and look to you to make that judgment. Um, with that sole exception, um, I personally don't think uh, the GM is the ultimate authority at the table, and I'll expand more on that. Oh, in a way, this is Mike, but uh, I, I sort of think that he, he sort of needs to be, in a way. Like, like, you have to be, like, your word has to be the... Um, the end to any argument, like, like even if you're not correct, if you are, if you want to make up the rules and say in this game we're gonna play it like this, your party should respect that. Unless it's like, unless your party is looking at it and it's going to really break the game, or if it's obviously wrong, like, uh. Attacking with a sword, all of a sudden shoots puppies out of it, and you—that's how he's going to play it. And everyone's like, "That sounds dumb." But uh, I, I think that he had, or he or she—I've um, had both as a DM, and uh, I think that that they have to have a little bit of that. I mean, they can—you can let the party have input, but I think you have to be. A, a force to to lead the the group and uh, and get them going down the path. Otherwise, you you get like chaos at the table. What do you think, Kurt? That's interesting. I think I agree with both of you, and I I think it depends to some degree on whether we're talking about rules or talking about the nature of the world or talking about where the game goes. Uh, I guess ultimately, as a player, and my perspective is the player perspective, I have never GM'd other than with eight-year-old kids, although I do want to do it in the near future, so I'm very thoughtful about these questions and very interested in the topics. 
But I would say most players, I think, are looking to the GM to be the ultimate authority to the extent that it, re- it keeps the game moving and, as Mike said, it eliminates debate or argument. I think the goal, if the goal of Dungeons & Dragons or role-playing is to have fun, if that's the game, it's a collaborative experience to have fun, then no, the GM's not the ultimate authority. We're all the authority. Together we create the game. But to the extent that a, a ruling is required to move the game forward or to end a debate, or because the GM is the one who has created or is at least interpreting the world for the players, if I want to play a drow and drow don't exist in this world, then obviously the GM needs to lay down the law on that and we shouldn't be able to fight about that. Um, Ideally, it's a perfectly collaborative venture. In practice, I think most players are looking to the GM to be the authority. Now, having said that, what I like about good GMs, including Joe, is... He doesn't have to know every rule. And in fact, I don't want him to rule on every rule. If he looks out to Mike and says, hey, you know, how does this work? Or, uh, Kurt, what's the ruling on this? Or, you know, JJ, what's the modifier on this? That's great. That keeps the game moving. It gets us involved. We, I don't have the slightest problem with that. Yeah, it, it, by saying that you want him to be the, the authority, I don't, you don't have to be know everything. Like, it, it's fine if they want to play it a different way or ask for help on something. Like, you don't have to know everything as a DM GM. So, I, I, you just have to sort of guide the fun. And I think that you can be like a, an authority in the fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I guess both of what you said, I, I just want to point, for my point from the GM perspective, specifically Joe as the GM, um, I didn't go into it too much from for the beginning because I wanted to see how you guys felt about it too. But the way you describe it is really the way that I interpret it as well. That And Mike's been more witness to it having played in the game um, that I've been running for about a year that I don't feel I need to create everything, right? So the, the GM doesn't need to. In addition, if there's any rules questions, I'll typically go to players first, Um because there's more people sitting around the table than me by sheer number. Somebody's probably going to know the rule if I don't. Uh, and then, then also, one of the things I like to do as GM, and Kurt, you mentioned you want to play a drow, but it's up to the GM to decide whether there's drow in the world or not. For me, I guess I could say, in some ways you could say it's the ultimate authority, but if that came up in my game that I run and someone wants to play a drow and we haven't seen one yet, I'd say, okay, you're a drow. Tell me what a drow is. You know, and I'll take it from that point that the player creates something that then becomes part of the world. So in a way, I guess you could say that is the authority that then allows it to happen. But I hate to stop a player from being able to do anything. I just... A lot of GMs will phrase it as, you know, give the players their own rope and they'll hang themselves. But I don't necessarily see it that way. I see it more as, you wanted to do something, why should I say no? I have to have a good reason to say no, (laughs) otherwise I don't want to say it because we're trying to get something done together. So I I can definitely agree with those points. Um, what about another one here that kind of leads into it, uh, or what we were just talking about leads into it a bit, is the GM responsible for the entire world? Now, the way I was just describing it, I would say, from again, from my perspective, no. Because if I have to make up everything, the world is going to take a long time to come out. <laughs> it's going to take, every time somebody says, is there a door over there, or is there a chandelier in this room, um, I have to take the time to come up with it. 
one, most of the time, once somebody asks me if a thing exists, I use the yes and methodology. It's yes, it exists, and what do you want to do about it? Right. Uh, because that's the whole reason you're asking to begin with. If I start with no, it just you know ends the discussion right there, and I like to think of the game as a discussion. Now, I've played it both ways, and I have fairly limited uh, GM experience, but I've played where I've used a, a pre-made um, adventure where everything was provided for me, so uh, in that way I'm, I'm not responsible for really anything in the world. But I've also created my own adventure, which is really great, but at the same time it was really stressful for me because I, I tried to plan every single bit of it. Like, I was, I would do maps, and I had, like, I even did, like, if they roll these numbers, then they'll do this part. And, and I, I tried to plan it out so much that once we got to the game, they somehow managed to skip past about three quarters of it and then I was stuck at the end where I this thing that I had made that I was so proud of and I had I had infused humor into it because the 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 uh, encounters never had any humor it was just all this this dry yeah. fantasy and uh, and they they just jumped right on by it and that, that my big two hour adventure that I had planned turned into like maybe. 45 minutes so uh at the very end they were like well uh that was fun yeah <laughs> but, Thanks, Mike. Uh, can, can you make some more <laughs> yeah. so you felt like when you were in charge of the entire world it was just what too daunting it just you didn't know what to expect from the players so. yeah and and like i loved to dm because i love to have, be involved the entire time in the game, and with a DM, you are involved with every decision that goes on. And but at the same time, I I need to plan. Like I can't make it up on the spot. And and uh, so it's just so much prep work, and and that really drives my wife crazy. And <laughs> this again, this question is the GM responsible for the entire world. Which I think just led into a related question, which is, you know, how much prep is required. I think those go together. To me, this is the most interesting aspect of what we may talk about today. I think the answer is the GM responsible is a resounding no. I mean, this is clearly a collaborative adventure. If your players are not contributing to the world in the adventure, it's not going to be fun for anyone, at least for me. But having said that, you know, what Mike says is spot on. The challenge is if you are GMing or if you're uh, critiquing your GM, you want to, the sense that he knows everything. But as a practical matter, there's no way that the GM can plan out every aspect of that world or every choice that the party members are going to make. It's just simply not realistic. So then the question is, is he just an improvisational master where you have the, only the broadest of sketches and he literally makes it up as he goes? Or is it something else? And I think for me, when I think about how I might DM or GM I envision it like uh, two things. I think of a flow chart. So here's here's a basic, the first major choice they'll get to, and here's like two or three ways I could see them going. And if they go, then having a rough flow chart of if they do this, then this, then this, and this, but without a ton of detail around each one of those choices. Or another way I've heard it described is, you know, 
first-time DMs want to make the whole world, and so they map out every corner of the whole universe, and players might only go to one tiny corner. Just map out the corner you need for today's adventure or for this month's adventure and get as much detail in your head as you can about that, and then as they push the boundaries, as they go over the next mountain range, as they go over that sea, then you can add to it. But if you've committed yourself to what's across that sea before you get there, you've really kind of tied your hands and that can be very frustrating as a DM. So I guess if you're to the extent you're comfortable with improv, you know, an outline or flowchart with a lot of improvisation is probably best. To the extent you're not comfortable with that, then you know, and you and I may be more in that camp. We want to plan everything out and that can be really, really, really hard. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, with, with an experience exception. From my own experience, uh, what I would say is don't plan it out like that. I mean, and I mean, I wanted to say this at the beginning and completely forgot. The standard, your mileage may vary. Every table's different. Uh, pretty much every sentence I say should start with, my experience has told me, or the people I've played with, this has worked better. Uh, and that's going to be true, I think, for everything. And I'll probably end up feeling like I have to say it again. But from that perspective, what I would tell you is, the groups that I've played with, in no instance could it be planned out ahead of time. Right. Uh, to the point of flowchart in detail, because the flowchart makes the presumption that there's an order to things. As soon as players sit around the table, any order you could have possibly conceived is lost. Right, unless you, and so they, you railroad them into things. Yeah, right. Like, and that, I've heard different game masters where they want to tell a certain story... And they will they will push you through that flowchart, but I think if you get a good GM like Joe, he he does Yay, like me. maybe the outline of a concept and and uses the the players to sort of fill in the colors in it. So like even like island names or town names or yeah. character names, he has none of those planned out and they they all get made up on the spot and then they become canon from then on out. That, that's so usually where like, the humor comes right. in. Right. Well, which le- And I have two thoughts about that. I mean, one, for people who might be listening, if you're out there and you've listened to some of our play sessions, I think that you have even said that you know, you're having a hard time with the starter set because it is very fixed, it's very yeah. railroaded, and it's not the way you like to play. And Technically, I want to play it as it's printed to give an example of the starter right. set using my own little flares that aren't in there. And I just, a quick example of the things like um, when JJ says Ferris casts a ray of frost at something and I say it freezes, there's nothing in the rules or in the module that say the thing freezes. It just says it takes damage. So I like to throw things in there to make it a little more. But yeah. But it's very frustrating to you when you have to flip two pages ahead to see what that NPC tells you. You know, yes. That obviously really bothers you. And I, yeah. it probably comes across to the listeners, and I don't think it's representative of how you would GM right. a home game. Um, having said that, I wonder, having not done it, okay, so if you can't really flowchart and you can't really script out, which I agree with, then... And given how easy it would be if you had really scripted it for players to just completely skip over a castle or a room or a dungeon, do you, and this is a question for you, uh, in advance of a night session, knowing you're going to play for three hours, say, I've got ten monsters that I'm going to have pulled out from the bestiary or the, uh, the monster manual, whatever it is, 
that I might like to use in some combination or some place, and that way you've got the stat blocks and you've got the you know, hit points or whatever it is that you need. And you don't know how they're going to play in, but you know at some point tonight you might see a bugbear, you might see a beholder, you might see a green dragon. Or is it truly on the fly? And then if it's truly on the fly, are you literally flipping through your books to find those stat blocks as you play? That that question has two answers. One answer is for D20 systems like Dungeons & Dragons. And for me, that answer is... I do need to have monster stat blocks ready for the ideas of the monsters in the area. So for me, that, that's a necessity. Now, sometimes I'll do that with, um, uh, I keep a, um, a tablet with a digitizer, a stylus. That's what I use to keep my notes. Normally here, I've actually been using pen and paper. But on that, I'll also do copies and pastes from things, so I have those in front of me. Um, I think that's a necessity for a D20 system because it's too difficult to go find the monster and... You know, you've got your, your monster manual here, and you've got your module here, and your ideas over there, and now you're flipping between pages. And, um, you, you know, for me, I'll want to write down, this is what I've done, and then the starter set, the adventure podcast we're doing, I'll take something like um, the goblins, my notebook's inside, I could show you, but um, I'll take those four goblins, and they just get numbers one, two, three, four. Right above their number, I write their armor class. Right below the number, I write the hit points. Because when we're playing, I want to refer to that quickly. And, and as you guys are doing initiative, I'll write that down. So there's some amount of prep there. And with the starter set, it's, what, 60-something pages that I need to read through, and the monsters are on the last few, so that makes it easier. The other answer to that is in a system like Dungeon World that we play, the monsters can be made up on the fly because the monsters are part of the story, not so much part of the combat roles. Um, it's tough to explain, but um, anyone who, who is familiar with that system, Dungeon World based on the Apocalypse World engine, uh, that type of game plays itself better. You just need to know what a monster can do in order to make the game work. You don't need to know all of its stats, so to speak. So that makes a big difference there. So if you are, you had just said, like, while we're figuring out our initiative, you might be doing that, which yeah. I think another thing you would want to talk about was how responsible is the GM for, you know, administering game mechanics and keeping track of player resources and things. And I would mm -hmm. definitely look to Mike on that. My feeling would be that shouldn't be at all, that that's something that can be assigned out to, you know, Mickey's got the maps, uh, Mike's tracking initiative, Kurt, you keep track of gold, whatever and that and then that takes a big load off of you but i, I don't would, know yeah i would definitely say that it, in my opinion a lot of the thing except maybe initiative because i think that it's helpful when the, the gm knows like who's going to go next but like things like hit points or different items that you get i if i was a gm i would pretty much say that um that you have to keep track or else the item didn't happen. Like, you, I mean, you could... There's differences with that. Like, in, uh, like, 4th edition, there was a lot of, like, I guess, um, different skills that or little powers that each of the weapons would have. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess as a GM, you could... Um, sort of remind players that their thing may, might have this cool power that would come in handy. 
but I don't think you're obligated to do that. I, I think it's just, it's more of a, like, it's, you're being nice to the players to, to come up with their stuff. I, I kind of agree with that. I'm going to say we're going to we're going to pause for a little bit because uh, JJ just walked in. We'll get him plugged in and ready to say, "All right, so JJ and Mickey are here now. Say hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, right peoples. Here. All right. Um, so we can pick right back up there as far as um, keeping track of equipment resources. Uh, what do you think, JJ? Like, as far as equipment resources and stuff, like I tend to um, try to make equipment special in a way. Uh, I've been a big proponent as far as within the D&D world of creating um, signature weapons whenever I DM so that the weapon matches the flavor of your character and it also um, levels up with your character. So it's an extension of your own soul, of your own character, rather than just some plus one frost longsword or whatever have you, may have you. Um, I mean that that sort of, that makes sense to me. Like uh, the even the uh, starter that we're start that we're playing now, I have this family heirloom axe that it really doesn't have any bonus or anything like that. So I I feel like I should use it because it's like one of the character hooks. Exactly. But at the same time, if it's if it's a sort of a bad weapon. I mean, we just picked up this this really awesome sword, but I'm gonna have to like s- really think about whether I want to use it. Uh, it. It would be nice if the the weapons were really thought out and and you could grow with the weapons and and they weren't really replaceable. Yeah, as a DM, like I never really liked um, doing the whole uh, character upgrade through equipment. I only generally like the um, the leveling up process. You know, choosing your feet, leveling up, like getting items to make your character more powerful always seemed more boring because I want your characters to have weaknesses and flaws. Like no char- no, no um, um, player character can actually be perfect at everything, but through items you can achieve that. Like. You know, I, I want Magic Missile to be able to hit my PCs. So, you know, having a brooch of reflection or whatever it may be called that negates Magic Missile to cover up that one weakness, I, I really dislike that. Hmm. Well, I can see how, as, as a DM or GM, you would have to... I just cut out. Yeah, the, Mickey, Mickey's going to have to move that mic. Mickey has there gone back. Um, I can see how... As a GM or DM, you'd have to keep track of those type of resources. But I remember, like, all the other resources in the game. When I started, I really appreciated it when the GM would remind me about things like that. Because when you're starting off, there's so much to keep track of. You have to keep track of your character, your abilities. Oh, and then this thing, these resources called gold. And then I've got rope and healing potions. What the heck? You know, so I, I appreciated getting a little bit of extra help. And I think as a GM, that's something you need to keep in mind is that the skill level and the experience of the players mm-hmm. that, that are at the table. Because more experienced players, it's by, you know, it's rote. They know right. to keep track of that type of stuff. But if you're playing with a whole bunch of novices, 
You're going to have to remind them every once in a while. Well, and, and to some degree, that depends on the GM's experience level. If he's back there worried about the next encounter because he hasn't done this a lot, then maybe the onus should be on us as players to help each other and make sure we remember that our party members have rope or whatever it is. Whereas if you have a very experienced GM and he can do the encounters in his sleep, then he can be more proactive about helping the players, particularly if they're novices, remembering. You know, I think about uh, when I started playing Magic the Gathering, you know, every card has a different power or a different mechanic. And it's totally overwhelming when you're a new player to remember what has flying, what has first strike, what has death touch. And your opponent doesn't have to, you know, it's a one-on-one game. Your opponent doesn't have to remind you. And if you don't use the mechanism, you, uh, it's gone. That. But a nice guy who wants you to get involved in the game and really like it is going to say, hey, that's got death touch. That's got first strike. You might want to use this differently. It's collaborative, which is how a good game should be here. Mm-hmm. I think part of it boils down to, um, in some games, and some tables, uh, there's the adversarial relationship between players and game master. And if you have that relationship, that's when that can kind of get out of control for me, the responsibility of GM and players to keep track of their resources. When we talk about something like a, a brooch of reflection or anything that the player is thinking, well, I can't wait for the GM to throw this at me so I can tell him, no, it doesn't work, haha. You know, <laughs> that, that gotcha moment, whether it be on the player side of the screen or the GM side of the screen, is something personally I detest. I, I'm like, oh, I hate when that happens because it, it bugs me. But as a GM, if you want to not have that happen, then it is incumbent upon you to then keep track of those resources. Like JJ said, knowing everything a character can do can help stop them from catching you at the right moment. That topic is a really important one. You know, I think a lot of new players view it as players against DM. And because the DM plays the enemies, because he plays the monsters. And that's just, to me, that is just so wrong-minded and it really ruins the game. Uh, I think your view, Joe, is, you know, to me, I don't say clearly very often. I mean, I've said in my opinion, in my experience, but... D&D, the only goal is to have fun, and it only works if it's a collaborative experience. And I think, you know, I haven't played a lot of higher-level games, and I certainly have not in a long time. I think when you're up at level 15 to 20, it's different. I mean, those monsters are so terrifying, and your powers are so huge that it really, almost by its nature, can become adversarial. But certainly at the, the reasonable levels that most people are playing, I hate to think of players combating against the DM. I think you just have to know... As a, a GM, DM, um, whether or where to pull back on the reins. Like, in in a certain way, like, you do want to have that, that, uh, want to kill the party, but none, no one in the party wants their hard earned character to get killed off by a group of people. So, like, especially if you're playing, if you're a DM for novices, you just have to know, like, oh, at this point, maybe I, I, there we're, we're really taking them down hard. Maybe we should, they should not have this power for a couple rounds. And, or maybe I won't use the, the finish them off uh, on this. Just so, like, the close, I find that the, the, uh, encounters that I we get close to, to everyone dying and we pull it out. They're the the most entering, interesting, best adventures. You just have to really know where to pull back because it, if you if you're too light on it, it's a cakewalk. If you're 
too hard on it, you'll just wipe them right away because uh, you can you can make anything. You can make right. It. right. Total party kills might be acceptable at level eighteen against a huge black dragon, but at level one starter set, four goblins kill the party is no fun for anyone. Although no. it's the JJ, JJ has said before his description of the good encounter. Say what you've said before. I mean, you want the party to exhaust almost all of their resources in need, in order to win the fight. Um, health is a resource. Your spells are a resource. You want to be able to use all of the resources and have the party just barely eke out. And in previous editions, um, say for example, three point five or even Pathfinder, like as Kurt was saying earlier, with the higher level, the, there, there's a bell curve. And at first level, the bell curve is the monsters and the PCs are pretty much on an even playing field. But as the PCs hit, like, level 12, 13, they're just cakewalking through the monsters. And all of a sudden, the monsters get these saber die abilities. And it's so easy to TPK, Total Party Killed, the group, without even... With, with just doing what you thought would be a challenge, even a minor challenge, and then the, the players just roll their saves badly, or you just roll incredibly well, and all of a sudden, it's just... And that's one thing I liked about 4th edition in that, like, Joe, you, you can attest, like, you had to have multiple failed saves. Like, the first save, you're, you fail, you're um, immobilized. The second save, you fail, you're restrained. The third save, you fail, now you're petrified. Or something like that. You had to have multiple failed saves, and I really like that. And from the only thing I'm... Little concerned about with far as fifth edition is apparently they brought back the saver dies. Yeah, mm. yeah, I, I've seen that a little bit in, in that too. Um, well, whether that holds through to it, uh, we'll see. I, I guess at least up to level five as we get through the starter set. Well, and what both Mike and and JJ have said raises a question I think about. Uh, and Joe, look to you for this uh, fudging rolls. You know, if the goal is to pull the pull the reins back so that. Everyone has fun, has a good encounter, but doesn't necessarily get wiped out in their first goblin encounter. Yeah. I know there are DMs out there, GMs, who will not fudge rolls and the die rolls as it is. To me, that seems silly if the goal is to have fun, but I'm not a game master. So I'm, right. what do you think about that? I, I think a lot of it boils down to, and I actually want to use this to lead into one of the questions I have up here about, is the GM duty, is that job? best handled by one person all the time because there are tables where typically there's one person that GMs all the time and I'll use the the game that we've been playing Mike and I have been a part of for the last year where I've been the GM the whole time and I'll say right out I don't mind if I get to play at all I, I would have fun playing but at the same time I really enjoy being the GM of the games we run except when we did D6 Space yeah, and so caveat here <laughs> however um what that means to me is that's only one person experiencing that thing you just asked, fudging the die rolls. Because it's expected of every player, when that die hits the table, if you grab it and pick it up right away, everyone's looking at you like, you just cheated, <laughs> right? So you get that bad rap. But somehow it's acceptable as a GM. And I agree. For me, as a GM, I don't even need dice. I love Dungeon World for this purpose. I never roll anything. The players roll everything. I just say what happens after the roll. So... When we're playing the starter set in our adventure podcast, I'm rolling the dice where someone can see it because to me, 
as a starter set, it should be played that way. So everyone's on fair level playing ground. But once you start getting the experience of judging that encounter, like Mike was saying, if you overdo it, everyone's going to die. And at that point, for a few moments, somebody might have some fun. And then everyone's going to realize, crap, or for that matter, oh shit, we got to roll up new characters. Fuck the orcs. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Because that's who just wiped out the party. Uh, Mickey, from the player perspective, how many different GMs have run games for you? Oh, and, and where From possible, exclude names of people that aren't here. I think I've played with maybe five to six different GMs. So you've experienced a, fle- a few different leader styles Correct. at the table. And yeah. my favorite GMs are ones that do kind of what you explained. They, they mm-hmm. keep a, t- a good finger on the pulse of the game and take the temperature of the players and kind of cater the game to the people who are sitting at the table. Because at the end of the day, you're there to have fun. Um, I've played with GMs that kind of stick to the rules and are real sticklers. And if you messed up a, a role or didn't play your particular ability too well, and you know, it's too bad. Move on to the next one. And I, I hated those games because they drag on. And especially when I was starting off. I mean, like I said, it was just, it's a lot to keep track on, keep track of. But those GMs who really, you know, keep the player's enjoyment in mind are the ones that I enjoy playing with the most. Cool. And um, as far as whether, to, you know, should you rotate GMs, I, that's a, a difficult question because... And, and, and you got to the meat of it, by the way. That's what that question is. Should you rotate the yeah, job? Right? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's an individual decision, right? Could, mm. Do I want a GM today? No. A couple of years from now? Maybe. Um, but it's, it's up to each individual player, I think, to make that decision. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Mike? I uh, I think that it's it's all right to switch up the GM on your group, but it's sort of tough to continue <laughs> the old GM's uh, story. Like, I think that if, if we were going to switch GMs, I would want to start, like, a whole new story. Because you're, you're, the GM, to a point... Is, is thinking up how the world works. And, like, Joe has this world that he makes up, like, everything, and then, like, who's the new person to say to that, oh, over on this place, it's not like what he said. It, it's like this. Mm-hmm. So I, I I don't have a problem with, with rotating it out. It's, it's easier... If you're going to continue a story, I would say stick with the the same GM. But I, it is nice to experience other people's GM style. So uh, it it's nice to mix it up from time to time. I heard something interesting that I'd never thought of. I was listening to another podcast the other day. Uh, blasphemy. There's blasphemy. Podcasts? Blasphemy. Yeah. Uh, and it was an interview uh, with a woman, and it was really her first time GMing, but she was a very experienced Dungeons & Dragons player and Pathfinder player. And it was an hour of this other game master talking to her about, you know, what did you like, what did you not like, what did you think you did well, where do you think you could improve? And it was fascinating. But what was particularly interesting was why she decided finally to GM after all these years of saying she didn't want to do it. And she had found this one adventure path, I think it was in Pathfinder, that she just loved and she had played it as a player and she loved it and it really hit her more than others and she played it again and I guess they're, I'm not familiar with it I think it might have been called Sands of Destiny or something but it had a lot of variants a lot of options and it was not a real world at all and so every time she played it it played differently 
And she just loved going into that world so much that she wanted to keep playing it, felt she had exhausted it as a player and said, I'm going to try to GM this. And so they talked about, well, you know, do you want to keep GMing? And she said, you know, it's interesting. She's like, I'm not opposed to doing it. I like it, but I think I want to keep doing this adventure. And so they talked about, well, maybe this will become her thing and she'll do this at cons or at local gaming shops or whatever. She'll be like this, whatever the name was, Sands of Destiny GM. He'll be kind of the expert on that. And maybe or maybe not, she'll go and do her own games or her own other adventure paths. I thought that was kind of an interesting little hook. Like you can just kind of become the master of one world or one adventure path and get really into that, which is very different from like Joe, what you do, which is like you love creating all these different worlds and different adventures. It's interesting because I mean, think about when you were a little kid, every little kid out there loved to create their own world and be kind of master of their own Some universe. of us didn't grow up. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, I can see that point. This, so, this game really allows So that. let me stick with you, Mickey, on that. I'm going to go to the last thing on here. From the player perspective, specifically, that's why I want to ask Mickey, because you haven't GM'd at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is the amount of improv- improvisation required on the other side of the screen for the GM? From uh, your perspective, what is I that? I think tons of improvisation is yeah. required. And I think that's kind of my fear of being a GM. Because, I mean, players can easily take your well-crafted little world and put it on its ear, you know? We never follow the path that is set out by the GM, yeah. ever. We like to climb garbage chutes. <laughs> we climb yeah. garbage chutes, and, and we kill monsters in, like, the second round. That And I, as a player, that's awesome when that happens. As a GM, I, that would really irritate me because I've spent four hours putting this 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 whole battle together and you guys blew through it in five minutes. No, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, so tons of improvisation, I think. So right from the other side of that, JJ, you've probably GM'd plenty of games that Mickey has been in. How much do you feel you've had to improv in those games? Oh, tons. Like she said, it's um, the, the players don't ever go the direction you expect them to. And something that my early DMing uh, was hindered by was the fact that, no, you guys need to do this. I created this, and you're going to do it whether you like it or not. And it was, you know, that, 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 that was a mistake on my part. And as I, as I matured as a DM, I realized that... Um, I, I was reading a, a book one time on improv, about improv in acting. And the goal in improv is to never say no. Whatever anyone does, you build off of that. And that really changed. That's what, that was the turning point. That was the keystone to my um, paradigm shift. Like I realized that I can build a world where the players are invested in it rather than me being invested in it and the pl- forcing the, my views onto the player. You get a better game when the players are the ones building the world and you're helping them see it. Right. I actually, um, you guys missed it because we, we had recorded it before you came in, but I was telling the, uh, Mike and Kurt that I use the yes and principle because no stops a conversation. No, just it's over. So things like, is there a fireplace in the room? Yes. And what do you want it for? 
you know, what are you going to do with it? And it, you keep that conversation going because to me that's what we're doing here. We're having a conversation and we're pretending to be elves while doing it, right? So that's cool. I got some practice with my nine-year-old last week. You know, we read bedtime stories and it's easy to do. And uh, sometimes it gets a little boring. So I said to them, I wanted them to craft the story. So I said to them, you know, to my nine-year-old and six-year-old, um, so who's going to be the hero tonight? You know, and the idea was I was going to ask who's going to be the hero, what's going to be the challenge, and I'll spin a little 10-minute story, which was all fun and games until my nine-year-old said, with a sly grin, Fuck Dad, the orcs. Dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's for you, T. <laughs> he said, the hero is a shoe. <gasps> and then I said... Uh, and what is the shoe's <laughs> challenge? And he said something like, he wants to get to the island to see a turtle. At which point, it's like 8.30. I've been at my law practice all day, and I was like, screw this, it's King Arthur again. <laughs> the shoe's name is King Arthur. As an interesting side note to that, specifically, my girls, uh, one of the things we used to do, uh, being a little older now, we haven't done it as often, but the bedtime story was always in the third person. So my daughter, Catherine, the bedtime story started with once upon a time, there was a little girl named Catherine and today she, and then we would fill in all the blanks and she'd go through her day uh, because unfortunately, you know, working, I missed the first part of the day. So listening to her go through that and, and that was a, a fun way to do it too. Especially when she put a, put dragons and, and, Yes, when she when she would tell me things that I know didn't happen that day, I let them slide in the bedtime story. Right? As a good GM, exactly. Yes, and yes, and it's time to go to sleep. <laughs> what do you think, Mike? Improvisation. Oh, it's huge. It creativity is like number one. It's like I said. I, I would draw a distinction between creativity and improvisation. But uh, go ahead and see. And explain. I wouldn't because, like, when you're you're making things up on the spot. You are just pulling straight creativity to, to keep up with the the group, and it's so so important. Like it's number one thing, like above even knowing the rules. Because if you can fake it better than your the party to the point where they don't care that you change the rules then uh, the adventure can go any way that you want it to go. You just nailed my GM style. Thanks. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me take a stab at this one because I, it's going to circle back to something that, that Kurt had said earlier, too, about the prep work involved in creating your own adventure. How much of an outline do you want to draw? How much detail do you want to put in there for the players to then go ruin, as Mickey said? Um, for me, a lot of it, which can seem like improv or creativity, I try and take a common sense approach. I'll use an example of something that happened in our Dungeon World game. Uh, the players were going to go find a cult. Uh, in the adventure, I had already determined just a few basic things, which to me don't really need a whole lot of creativity or improvisation. Um, this cult had an underground lair. There were only two entrances to it. And within the cultist lair, it was a place where they could live. So therefore, it had to have some basic necessities, like a kitchen, a meeting area, uh, a place to, uh, to sleep, and then also, because it's a cult, a place to worship or study. Um, however, nowhere did I draw a map, even think about what the entrances were, and it was only when the players went to go look for it that it mattered. So the prep work involved there is just who, who exists, what is their goal, and where might they be found. That's it. 
uh, it was only once they got there that I thought about, well, crap, now I need to find a way to get in there. So they went near Farmer Phil. Farmer Phil. Farmer Phil, the, the, uh, who, who one week was a potato farmer and the next week was a corn farmer. So he became a porn farmer, mixed potato and corn. He had porn, <laughs> porn crops, right? Um, and it's they ended up finding. Right? So the entrance was off to the side of the town. They found an entrance, etc. And, and then when they went down, you know, I, I'm thinking, all right, so they got to go down underground. I, I made up a spiral staircase, and it, there's stuff that does need to be made up. But one of my cautions is, don't make it up before you need it. And when you make it up, just use real world stuff. You know, if there if something is down in the uh, underground, then all you need is a tunnel or a stairway to get there. You don't need a uh, a rough hewn marble staircase with moss along the side, Sir Walter Moss along the sides of it. And some of the marble steps are cracked, and the third one down has a flagstone that's out of place. And you don't need all that to be ready. You may need all that later on. You may want to end up creating it. And that, this, to me, that's the difference with creativity and improv. For me, improv is setting up the situation, and creativity is all the little details that go along with it. Well, the nice thing about... Oh, sorry, Mickey. I was going to ask, so where do you... as This can go around the table. Where do you draw from as inspiration when you start creating these worlds? From I'll use, again, a, a real-world example because I like it. When... When I create the world, it's around the players to begin with. So, And you, you were there for a couple of those where we find out who the players are, and then the world is based around that. And again, the big thing, and this is a good, another good plug for Dungeon World, because the system fits my play style as it's always been, and I only learned about the system two years ago. So it's, I, I feel like I wrote it. Mike asked me once if I was part of writing it. But anyway... It sets it up as you don't need all of the details. What are the main things that are happening in the world that the players care about? So, for example, use the stereotypical Dungeons and Dungeons and Dragons. There's a dragon out there somewhere, and there's a kingdom that needs to be protected. So, right there, you've got, for me, that's your whole world. So, the dragon, his agenda is to destroy the kingdom or get the treasure. The kingdom's agenda is to protect themselves from the dragon. And everything the players do should be linked to that in some way. And if it isn't, change. Because yeah. then they're not interested in that anymore. And it's time to, to make find out what they are interested in. So maybe this player is a, a ranger. And in his backstory, he described that there was a problem in the woods. Well, now set the woods on fire. Now there's a new front, as it were. And uh, phone, and um, and to me that that I create when only when the players aren't. Hmm. I guess that's one one way to look at it. I, I only need to create what the players don't. That's really cool. I, in the one I I've only written one adventure, and it was right after I um I was involved with uh, DMing a whole season of encounters and in the finale I didn't pull it back just enough that one of the players died and and I could see it, and I, I play with Jessica every every week on Monday night and I could see that she was just a little bit sad that everyone else survived and she had somehow failed in that she hadn't survived with everyone else to to basically go to the victory party 
which is like <laughs> at the very end of all the encounters, you like you beat the big bad guy, and then the the, te- the town is like, "Yeah, you're the best ever." So the where I pulled from for for writing mine was that they found that they could resurrect her, but to do so, they would have to get this like real big wealth source, and the the th- thing that they they got to is that this one lost mine had the biggest diamonds in the world. So if they could find this lost mine, they could get the diamond that they needed to bring her back. So I think she even played like the sister of the character that died so that they could almost continue the story into this. And I, I've only really written one adventure and they like they blew it to hell once they got in there because i had planned like oh this giant ogre is going to be in this back room and once you go in there you'll have this big fight and instead they went the opposite way so that the ogre had to like almost chase them down the hall to actually be used but uh a lot of and you sort of fill in from like TV and movies and video games, like, the details that that really make the story fun to play and and really help people visualize. And I think that's that's where I pull from. JJ, when you do your prep work, when you've done your prep work, um, regardless of what edition it was, how much do you think you pull from the books compared to what you pull from your head? Oh, Lord. Um, when you say books, do you mean source material? Or yeah, the pr- printed materials for the game. Like if we say fourth edition, um, do you make up monsters or do you pull them all out of the book? Do you go um, find an I adventure have, already in, published? In fourth edition, I never uh, created a monster. I just I, I pulled from, and then I would create extra abilities, especially if they were common monsters. Um and so I would create extra abilities. You were the psychic feedback experiment the one time I did that on you. Um, and killed you know, myself. I, I would yeah. try like another one. Another thing I thought I was brilliant was I had runes of power on a creature. And um, so you had nine of these creatures out here, and they could each do one die 12 worth of damage. As you, in DM, there's a philosophy among the player base is you focus one monster until it's dead, then you move on to the next one, <laughs> and you move on to the next one, and you move on to the next one. Everyone does going. this. So I created something that would be detrimental to that. So what happened was, as they killed the first monster, now the other eight now do two die 12 damage. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And then they killed the next one, now all of them are doing three die 12 damage. Yeah, that sucked. And <laughs> so, like, after they started getting walloped, they were just, okay, now we got to whittle this guy down to, to bloody. Then we got to get this guy down to bloody. Then this guy down to bloody. And then we need to group them up so the wizard can fireball them all to hell. <laughs> and, yeah. like, at, at least for me, I think that's my strongest, my, my strongest ability is improving fights. Um, I don't think I'm as good a storyteller as Joe is, but I love the challenge of challenging the players without killing them. To be fair, I don't think I'm as good as I am either. But yeah. <laughs> Having played with both of them, I would agree with that. You yeah. are, JJ, uh, you are amazing at gaming fights, and it would irritate me to no end when he would just yeah. switch the rules mid-fight 
on monsters. I'm like, that's not fair. You can't do that. Fourth edition tactical stuff that that made a big difference. Oh, to, it was to, terrible to have that mind in there. Kurt, has there has there been any, anything that you heard that helps you get ready for your first GM session? Anything else you'd like to hear? I mean, it's all very helpful. None of it's really unexpected, mm-hmm. other than just I think giving confidence to improv more and plan less. Yeah. Having said that, you know, for my first time or two, I'll probably use a printed adventure. Um, although I'm definitely drawn towards uh, planning a world or planning a campaign. Uh, I have other pressing priorities in my life yeah. at the moment. Um, but I also think it, you know, the things that what I don't like in a GM, you know, we talk about what we like and what do we expect. What I don't like is getting drawn out of the game. And it seems like if I'm hearing you correctly, you know, you're, if you're making it up on the fly, yeah, it's hard to do that. But on the other hand, it's just coming out of your head so you can give it straight to us. Whereas, for example, and this is not in any way a criticism of you, of you it's a criticism to some degree of printed adventures. You know, when you're when the DM has to flip back and forth or when you ask a question about an NPC and, you know, Wizards of the Coast who wrote the adventure hasn't told us what that NPC would say, it's really hard unless you're, you know, you've really thought about it you just kind of say, well, you know, the adventure doesn't say what happens there. or something. And that takes you out of the world. Whereas I think when you run your Dungeons World game, that would never be the response. You would come up mm-hmm. with, you know, yeah. you would come up with an answer to any question anyone asks you about any one of your characters. And so um, I like that idea of having a rough idea of where you want to go in a framework, but really making it up to the extent you can as you play. And I would say, as I listen back to um, the adventure podcast that we've, that we've released now, um, I'll say I'm really pleased with myself at coming up with the MMO idea of the question marks above their heads and stuff. Really, because I think about this from the pre-printed adventure perspective. The pre-printed adventure pretty much has your NPC has lines that you're going to read, or they're just going to say, welcome to town, adventurer. (laughs) And that's it, right? And no matter how many different ones you walk up to, they have either nothing or a pre-printed line or two. And that's what makes it difficult with the, with that published adventure. And one thing I would caution anybody who wants to start with a published adventure is go into it with that mindset. Make sure you know that if there isn't an answer, it's really a good idea not to make one up. Because if, if for example, you're talking to the mayor and the mayor has three lines and you know one of them is, fuck you orcs, one of them is... Uh, the orcs are coming back to raid the town, and the last one is, you know, we killed all the orcs. And somebody says, you know, how much does tea cost? Don't say it costs five gold, because somewhere else in the adventure it's going to say tea is five silver, and you just broke the adventure. So you have to be cautious, only use what's printed, and that is, it does frustrate me with the starter set, but if I start creating stuff that isn't printed, the next page may undo everything that's been done. Yeah. The so answer to how much tea cost would be, go see Linda down at the town store. But then you find out it's actually Fred. <laughs> right. Right? So now you've just transgendered an NPC for no reason because... Because it's fun. Yeah. Right. Well, that's fun if you're making it up. But then the published adventure, like Kurt, you had said once, um, there's going to be people that are cursing at the, the podcast because we're saying a name of a town wrong. Well... Think about if we screw up the whole damn adventure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And that happens at the table. So that, that's a big thing. Uh, so I, I would say definitely if you – I am a fan of pre-published adventures, mind you. It doesn't sound like it. But I am because 
they can set things up for you that you won't have to. A big part of the, the combat system, especially in Dungeons & Dragons, is the proper challenge rating. I don't even know if they call it a CR now or whatever it may be. I know Pathfinder still does, but the proper challenge for the players is almost always set up for you in a published adventure. And they'll tell you right on it for one to four player or what, like four to five players levels one to three. In that case, you, you have a good idea that the encounters are properly balanced because in a system that requires, or that depends so heavily on skills and stats and die rolls, you need it to be balanced for you. The only other thing I would mention is, you know, for people out there is just to realize how much (laughs) you should all say thank you to your GM. I mean, even ones who are imp- improvising and making up as they do generally a lot more work than the players do in most cases. And it's a huge commitment Lots of emotional more. energy and time and, in a lot of cases, hosting at their home or their shed. So uh, make sure you buy your GM a beer every now and then and give him, him or her a pat on the back. I have the Holy Grail bottle here somewhere. It's up there. Uh, it's behind the big ass. You know how they say, like, in, um, in education, when you're going to college yeah. or whatever, you like, for every hour you spend in class, you should spend three hours studying or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same way with the with the DM. For every hour, you know, your players play, you're going to spend about three hours preparing for it. Oh yeah, and that's why I I love DMing, but I hate the prep because it's just it gets overwhelming. It is unbelievable. Like, even the pre-printed uh, Encounters adventures, I was, like, I was making the chart that, that Joe says, like, for every bad guy, I would have, like, their hit points and their 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 um, armor class and, like, what moves they had. And I, I would rewrite it down from the book so I had it all in one place and didn't have to flip back and forth. And it would just be, like... I, I would be like sitting in the living room, and my wife's watching TV, and and she'd be like, "Well, I, I thought you played yesterday. What what are you doing working on the thing?" And it, it's like, "Well, if I don't do it now, I'm gonna have to like right before it do all this." Like it got to the point where I would just to have something more planned and ready, I would pre-roll. And I would just have a card and and just roll, 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 roll. So, like, right before everyone started, I would just roll, like, 50 times and write them on the card just so I would, like, I could focus on everything else that was going on in the game and didn't have to roll. Like, I would just go down the list and check them off as I use them, and it, it could help out or it could be... You could luck out, and, and it was the worst roll I'd had on that entire card. Uh, but it, it is so much work to, to GM sometimes. I, I know it, it can be. It? it is really it's really fun though. Too. Yeah, <laughs> I think, I think for the how much work it is. Like there was one time where we had nine people at the table, and. The, the DM was like getting just really frustrated and trying to keep track of like I mean anyone who's DM and tried to do nine people is crazy. So what ended up happening was I volunteered to um, run the combat side of things. I was going to be the co DM and I would only run the combats while the other DM controlled the story of the like NPCs and everything like that. And that system worked out really really well. Um, we ended up playing like that for about nine months and it was a lot of fun. 
That's a good point of shared responsibility, too. I, I've played that way with a co-DM, even just swapping a story back and forth. And it can be fun, but it also takes the, the right division of responsibilities or the right pairing of personalities. Yeah, I would say. So I want to say we've got just a few minutes left. I want to hit back on something Mickey said. We've been talking about what you expect of a GM, but what about what do you not want to see from a GM based on your own experiences? Kurt, you go. I want someone who hasn't prepared, okay. uh, whatever that means to him or her. Uh, you know, just showing up and saying I'm going to wing it is not going to be acceptable. I mean, you've got. I guess you got to stop showing up here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you played enough yeah, that to the extent yeah. you wing it, it is not truly winging it. And I just you've done yeah, your prep. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I want someone who, if not loves the game, at least respects and is really interested in the game. You know, if you don't like it, let's not waste the time. Let's do something else. By the game, do you mean the rule system or the group of people at the table or both? That's a great question. I was thinking the rule system. I mean, you know, don't be do. Now, I realize for our podcast, we're doing different games for a learning experience. But generally, if you're DMing, play a game you like. If you don't like the Dungeons & Dragons world, go play Shadowrun. If you don't like Shadowrun, go play Dungeon Crawl Classics. Whatever. Um, That's an interesting question. What if you, how do you feel about your group uh, because I imagine that that is difficult and that rarely will you like everyone at the table and uh, that you will like some groups more than others and I would think that you could still be a great effective DM even for a group you didn't love uh, of players that you didn't really love um, I guess I would want to think a little more about that but I would want you to at least really like the game you were or be very interested in the game you were doing um, Right, what do you that, think? I mean, I have some other thoughts, but I'd I throw it over to Mike. Yeah, what do you think? Uh, I, I, and I think I said this earlier, you know, the railroading, just to get, like, it, it's so tough. Like, you, you do all this planning and, and stuff, and you want them to do, use your stuff that you've made. Uh, it, it's, but you don't want the DM to, to railroad you into it and, and to make you do this thing. Like, and I've almost seen this with the the adventure we're playing, where we got to uh, Philandrin and uh, Vandalin <laughs> and uh, Vandalin, and the whole group was like, "Okay, we're go- we're going out after after his cousin. We're we're going to go up find Cragmall Castle, and and then we're we're hit that, and uh, and then we go." Oh, but all the NPCs want us to do their their busy work just so they'll tell us where it is. So, yeah. so we're we're routed away from what we actually would probably do if if he was making it up, and it it hurts it a little bit. I mean, I love to do these side quest things, and I'm sure it'll be fun and interesting to to get our butts kicked by a banshee or whatever it is. <laughs> but uh, but I I. I it would be nice if, if it truly let us go where we want to go. So from that perspective, would you say what you don't want out of a GM is to follow that? You want them to bend it so it's not a railroad? What What is the part that you well, don't I'm like? just thinking that, like, if, like, it, it makes it take you sort of out of it if if they're just pushing toward this one thing and don't let you, like, do your own way. Like, the pre-made adventure wants us to do these side quests. And so going up to 
the castle first and then maybe doing the side quest later doesn't even seem like it's an option where if if you were running the adventure you you we could probably push them out out in different order and it would be perfectly fine that's a really good point on that adventure because i if i hear you correctly and if i remember our last session correctly we have to do one or more of the side quests to get the information about where Cragmar castle is whereas yeah why can't we go to yeah. Someone knows where Cragmore Castle is, and in then we can general, choose to come back and take care of the Banshee. It's in still general, there. the answer is yes, but I'll still say that one reason I'm so tickled about the idea of the MMO, the, the online game uh, mesh there, is this is very much like that. It's, mm-hmm. When you first start World of Warcraft or EverQuest or whatever, you can't go do the level 20 quest. You have to start level one going through the full storyline for your class before you can see the paladin trainer who gives you the holy sword. You can't get the sword at one. And that's what that this adventure screams to me at this right. point. Since I made that internal connection, of course, I'm going to make it all linked. Sometimes I'm biased you have to towards get it. the beaver pelt before you can... Uh... Get the beaver. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this adventure, we have to remember, it's yeah. a starter set. It is yeah. meant for people who have either never played D anD D or who want to start fresh after years away. It's not made for people who have all played Pathfinder and four point oh, and you know. Um, so I I hear what you're saying. It's yeah. interesting. Uh, at a larger question, I know we have to wrap up that open world versus railroad because in video games, you know, that, oh, everything used to be very linear, very railroad, and then we hit a point maybe with Grand Theft Auto three or something else, where it was just open sandbox. You could go anywhere you wanted. You could do whatever you wanted in any order. Yeah, pretty much a game where you could kill hookers was the door opener for everything. <laughs> exactly. Right. But I think about Skyrim, which, uh, you know, Elder Scrolls V Skyrim, which a lot of people, it's their all-time favorite game. It's their all-time favorite fantasy game. And to me... It actually drove me insane for two reasons. First of all, you could have 150 side quests open at any given time. I mean, every NPC you met gave you a quest. But more importantly, it had a driving story, actually two driving stories that seemed really important. You know, dragons are about to destroy the world and there's a civil war. I mean, those are big stories. But if you spent 200 hours doing side quests and chasing daisies, Nothing happened in those main stories. They just sat there and waited for you, which drove me nuts because I was like, it can't be a very compelling story <laughs> if it'll sit there and wait while I do all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, I, it sounds like a bit of a, a tangent, but I think it does go into this question of, you know, how do you build linearity into a story without restricting player agency? Yeah. Back to that topic of what um, do you not want to see in a GM? As someone who's probably spent an equal amount of time being a player as a GM, um, one of the things that always annoyed me as a player and something I strive to not do as a GM was, uh, as Mickey said earlier, feeling the pulse of the group. If you see one of your players um, you know, staring at their phone or twiddling their thumbs or just dozing off into space, um, just because it's interesting to you as a GM and you know that this huge plot hook is coming up and you just got to get them to go to it, maybe it's not as interesting as you think it is. And you have to be willing to just drop that, even if you've done the 19 hours of prep work. If you, if the players just don't care, you got to keep... I mean, it, 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 like, it, like, it, like we all said, it's all about having fun. And that's basically what it is. It's something I've tried to do as a GM and one thing I'm... It always irks me as a player. Yeah, you want a GM that can that can get the hint without needing to be hit with a clue by four. Yeah. All right. 
<laughs> I heard what you did there. <laughs> what do you think, Mickey? Things you, I mean, hey, you brought it up, but let's go back to you on it. What are what you is, not, What is it that uh, I do not want a GM to do? Yeah, I mean, and not necessarily just one thing. I mean, list the myriad of things JJ think, does that annoys you. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone, we want to go there. I don't think we have enough time. Um, I think everyone kind of has already covered it, but from uh, the perspective of a female player, I would expect the GM to treat me like any other player. Because, I mean, let's let's face it, in this world there are few female players that are willing to sit at a table of guys, with guys, and play this kind of game. So I would expect to be treated just as well as, like, one of the guys. Not singled out or objectified. And don't expect anything less of me, or less of me versus the other players, just because I'm a girl. Uh, I I promise I won't single you out, but not objectifying you, I'm not sure that's going to (laughs) happen. Sorry. Damn it, Joe! I I am what I am. Um, I I would say, back to uh, to round it out, for me, from the, the... perspective and and for me it's mainly looking at other gms because out of the time i've played i think i've been a player three times and you guys have been there for two of them and it was both the same game just two different characters um but the fourth edition i mean not the same scenario but what what i watch for really are the things that again like jj said things that i try not to do myself um where and this goes back to the prep thing, where a GM has prepped something, or, or they know something's about to happen, and the players just walk around it. It always disappoints me that that GM doesn't just make it happen anyway. And I don't mean from the point of railroad. Uh, an example I'll use is that we were, well, actually, I can't remember if you guys were there, but it was at that guy's house. And we were in this end scenario for the end encounter for a scenario. And it was a big room, and there was a bad guy at the other end of the room, and we had to walk across the room to him. And he had the grid laid out on the table, and he said, when you move, you have to show me what squares you move to. And, all right, uh, so you're moving to there? No, that one's okay. All right, so you're moving to H4? Well, that one's okay. And it's painfully obvious there are traps in the room. Now, nobody stepped on one, and boy, was he pissed. Now, you can imagine he was pissed. And I sat there the whole time saying, just set off a trap. Set it off. Yeah. It just set one off. Don't don't get upset that the ultra cool thing isn't happening. Just make it happen. It, it's it is that simple because the players don't know they weren't stepping on those stones until you told them they weren't. So it's just as easy to say, "Oh, that was a bad step," and then explain this cool thing that you've been brimming to talk about. And to me, it's one of those things that when we're playing and, and the the game that Mike and I are in, if there's anything cool to be had, someone is going to have at least one clue of it before the the day is done, no matter what it is. And if not, I feel like I failed because it's a secret then. And a secret in a game where everything is by default a mystery, a secret's the default. It's stupid. You know, it's got to be, it's got to come out. In the real world, hiding is clever. Because you can see everything until something is hidden. And when we play at these tables, it's the exact opposite. Everything is hidden by default, and it's only what comes to light that's cool. So if it didn't come to light, if no one ever hears about it, then it was just a waste. And that's where the prep comes in. The more prep you do, the more you should be ready to either let it go when they skip it, or just bring it in the next room. If there was a treasure chest and they don't search this room, just put it in the next one. Wait till they say they search a room and say, there's a treasure chest. 
Yeah, don't, don't let the cool stuff slip by because then at the end of the session, you're the GM that says, wow, you guys skipped everything. You're stupid. And everyone around the table saying, what a pompous ass. Yeah. <laughs> right? Never playing with him again. <laughs> exactly. Because now you're the cool guy that had all the secrets. I mean, this is what you're thinking as a GM. I'm the cool guy. I've got all the secrets and they don't know anything. In the meantime, they're like, well, everything was secret. You could have just told us. And, and that brings it back to the adversarial natures of yeah. sometimes... You know the the players get upset when they die, but it, there's no reason to be upset. It's just part of the story. You had to take your death as part of the story, and the same thing with you know the players going against the DM. You know, like it, it, you can't have it adversarial. You guys are working together to build the character, mm-hmm. to build the start uh, the world. I think maybe we'll try that on the next sidebar for anyone who's listening. We'll see if we keep up the truth here. But what about uh, adversarial and player death? I think they're but character death, player death. I haven't experienced yet, um, but yeah. character death. So we'll pick that up. In the meantime, uh, we're good here. How about we all say goodbye? Bye everyone. Bye everybody. Adios, <laughs> You're just gonna say it once. Everybody, one, two, three. Penis. Yes. Penis. Penis. In this sidebar podcast, we discuss some of what it means to each of us to be the GM. We invite your comments at adventuresfromtheshed.com. Remember to look us up in iTunes and subscribe to our podcasts using iTunes or your favorite RSS feed app. Thanks for joining us. The preceding podcast was brought to you by Shedcast. You can find us online at adventuresfromtheshed.com.